Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. Dramatic changes are underway in how the United States produces and consumes energy, with major implications for the country's workforce. Despite setbacks due to the COVID pandemic, the transition to clean energy is accelerating. Along the Atlantic shore, states are racing to establish large offshore wind farms and the manufacturing supply chains to support them. Automakers in the middle of the country have committed to shifting production to electric vehicles and the federal government to supporting a nationwide EV charging network. Opportunity will continue to grow in clean energy manufacturing, infrastructure, and services. A key challenge that lies ahead is to ensure that these new jobs provide secure, living wages to support families and communities as they propel the energy transition. On today's podcast, I'll be talking with someone who is working with organized labor to ensure that new jobs in the clean energy economy address both economic inequality and the need to rapidly decarbonize. Lara Skinner is director of the Labor Leading on Climate Initiative at Cornell University's School of Industrial and Labor Relations. Her work focuses on assisting unions to actively engage in decision-making around clean energy and climate policy. Lara, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Andrew. It's great to be here. The country is undergoing a transition to clean energy, and your work emphasizes the dual opportunities that this presents to address climate change and to create high-quality jobs. Can you talk about the fundamental opportunity the energy transition presents? Yeah, I think, you know, big picture, you know, when we think about this transition, you know, we have to keep in mind to tackle the climate crisis at scale and really to do what we need to do by 2030, by 2040, and then 2050, when climate scientists are saying our economy needs to be at net zero, it's gonna require a lot of work and a lot of jobs, right? We're talking about a a massive uh, transformation of our economy, unlike anyone we've potentially ever seen before, right? And it's not just the energy sector, it's also the transportation sector, it's also the building sector, it's also the industrial sector, right? Um, the energy sector gets a lot of focus, right? How do we transition to a low carbon, zero carbon energy economy based more on renewables? But we also have to figure out how we're reducing emissions in the building sector, how we're reducing emissions in the transportation sector. And in most um, parts of the country, transportation is often um, the largest source of emissions um, across the economy. Um, so, you know, to do this, to transition to electric vehicles, to really expand and improve our public transit system, potentially have high-speed rail, um, right, so that folks can take train, um, which is a much lower carbon source of transportation than, um, say, you know, flying, to reduce emissions in our buildings, to make them more energy efficient, to have renewable energy generation on site, to have large-scale battery storage systems to regulate our energy system, you know, to have a, a more renewable energy system, and to figure out how to decarbonize, you know, the industrial sector. How do we still make steel? How do we still make concrete, but do it in a low-carbon or zero-carbon manner? All of that's going to create a ton of work, right? We need to build a lot of stuff to get there. So I think big picture, it's important to keep in mind that, you know, most studies estimate that we're looking at creating anywhere between 15 and 25 million jobs uh, in the U.S. over the next couple decades to deal with the climate crisis. 
I think the other part of this is the quality of jobs, right? Which you mentioned and which I focus a lot on is, you know, how do we make sure that these new jobs, there's going to be a lot of new jobs. How are we, how do we make sure that these are going to be high quality family and community sustaining jobs that help to deal with the crisis of inequality that this country is facing, um, right? Right now, our economy is mostly producing low wage, low quality jobs. That's the vast majority of jobs. Um, so how do we use the opportunity of this transition to make sure that these are going to be high quality jobs? And from the union perspective, right, many unions fought long and hard to make sure that the current energy sector jobs are good jobs, right? You know, think about utility line workers. You know, back in the 1800s, 50% of utility line workers were dying on the job. It was a very dangerous job and it took the utility workers union, it took the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, you know, many decades and struggle to make sure that these were, you know, good paying jobs, high quality jobs with the appropriate, you know, health and safety training um, that went along with them. And if you look at unionization rates across the energy sector, it's much higher on the fossil fuel side of the energy economy than it is on the new solar wind energy efficiency side. Um, and just to be, you know, very specific, you know, if you look at fossil fuel power plant generation or nuclear power generation uh, jobs, about 20% of those jobs are unionized. If you look at solar, it's three to 4% of those jobs are unionized across the country. And in wind, it's a little bit higher. It's like six to 7% unionized. So there's a big concern here, you know, around the quality of these new jobs and how do we make sure that these new jobs are going to be high quality um, and help deal with the crisis of inequality that we're facing. Well, this gets to a fundamental question here. So how is the nature of work in the clean energy economy different from work in traditional fossil fuel and fossil fuel related industries? Yeah, I would say, I mean, one of the biggest issues that we deal with is that there are not nearly as many jobs in the, on the operations and maintenance side of solar and wind work as there are in the, the current energy economy. So if you think about, you know, building a nuclear, coal, oil, or gas power plant, there's a lot of jobs created constructing those plants, but then there's also a lot of jobs operating and maintaining those plants. Um, it takes a large workforce to operate those plants. And then there's often a number of workers and, you know, unionized trades that come in a couple times a year and do maintenance and tuning on those plants to keep them running well. Once you build solar and wind, right, there's a good amount of um, jobs on the construction side. Of course, we need to build a lot of solar and wind and a lot of, you know, other types of renewable energy work. So there's a lot, a lot of work on the construction side. But then once they're up, there's very little work on the operations and maintenance side. And so that's, you know, that makes this transition scary for, um, you know, workers who are currently in the energy economy. You know, are there actually going to be the same number of jobs, you know, in the renewable energy economy as we currently have, you know, and that's just on the number of jobs, of course, you know, I just spoke to the kind of issues around quality of those jobs. What are the, what's the pay? What's the benefits? You know, what are the, the training and safety opportunities that, you know, go along with these new jobs? And then the other thing I would say is just, you know, there's not a one-to-one -one sort of direct correlation between where we currently have power plants and produce power in this country and where we're building or might build solar and wind. And so you have to remember that, you know, it's often whole communities that are based around a power plant. So if you have a big, you know, 1500 or 2000 megawatt, um, you know, power plant, um, you know, a whole community is often sort of oriented around that power plant. It provides a lot of jobs. It could, you know, provide anywhere from, you know, 500 to 2,000 jobs. And then there's a lot of indir indirect and induced, you know, jobs and economic benefits that go along um, with that power plant. Um, we had a power plant 
um, here in New York, a big nuclear plant that shut down. And, you know, that plant paid tens of millions of dollars a year in, in taxes to the local community. And so it was actually the teachers union and other parts of the public sector workforce that came to us and said, this plant closing down is having a big impact on our workforce. You know, the public budget just isn't there to sustain, um, you know, uh, the, the budget around our schools, around sanitation, around other, you know, public services that the community needs. Um, so you have to think about those broader impacts as well. And, you know, with the deregulated energy sector that we have, it's not like you can say, oh, we're closing down a coal plant here. We're going to build a whole bunch of sol solar and wind in the same exact spot. It often doesn't happen that way. So, you know, that's another element of, you know, why this transition is a little bit tricky. Why the low rates of unionization in clean energy, at least low relative to what the fossil fuel jobs would have? I mean, a big piece of that is just, you know, um, like I said earlier, I mean, the, the, the labor movement, the union movement, you know, fought for many decades to make those current jobs in the fossil fuel and current energy economy good jobs and unionized jobs. You know, I mean, lives were lost in struggles that they had to unionize those workforces and make sure that, you know, workers had a demo democratic collective voice on the job. These are new industries, you know, so it takes time to um, you know, for, you know, organized labor to sort of catch up with the industry and, you know, try to make these good jobs, you know, at the same time, we're now working in a totally different environment than we were back in the late 1800s and early 1900s when unions were first starting up, you know, now it's very hard to unionize and to organize workers in this country. Um, uh, there's a lot of barriers um, to workers being able to come together and have a democratic collective voice on the job. Um, the other part of it is, you know, the vast majority of clean energy work that needs to be done needs to be done in the residential sector, you know, so we're not talking about steel mills, you know, with 20,000 workers, um, you know, at one site, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of workers spread across, you know, the whole residential sector, right, many houses across the whole US. So it's a harder sector to organize. So you direct the Labor Leading on Climate Initiative at Cornell, and that's really working on bringing labor together to ensure that there are unions, that there are collective agreements to make sure that these new jobs in clean energy are also high quality, sustain families, have good benefits. Tell us more about the initiative's role and its objectives and where the genesis for it was. Yeah. So, I mean, the, when I think about the work that the Labor Leading on Climate Initiative does, I think about three things. And the one is, you know, that we're, we're studying the labor and employment impacts of climate change. And so when we started this work about a dozen years ago, there was, you know, increased attention on the crisis of climate change, but it was largely seen as an environmental issue. And of course, you know, this issue actually has, you know, a huge social, you know, economic broader labor and employment impacts. And those those impacts were not really being looked at carefully. And so we thought, you know, as a school that has worked with um, workers, employers, organized labor for many, many decades since the late 1940s, this was a special um, sort of uh, angle that we could provide on this work is what are the labor and employment impacts of climate change 
and the transition to a clean energy economy. So, you know, both how are workers and workplaces and economic sectors going to be impacted by climate change, right? Um, there's been more focus recently on how will extreme heat affect folks who work outside, right? There's big implications of that. And, you know, again, we're talking about whole, you know, sectors of our economy needing to shift and change. And what will the workforce implications of that be? Um, and so that's, you know, part of what we're doing is just trying to understand what are those labor and employment impacts. You know, ultimately, what we want to do is make sure that we're maximizing the jobs and economic benefits of this transition. We think there are massive opportunities related to making this transition to a clean energy economy. But we also know there are challenges um, like around job loss, like around uh, displacement of communities, um, like around whether these will be high quality jobs or not. And so we want to minimize job loss. We want to minimize the negative impacts. We want to maximize the positive benefits and make sure that equity is centered in, in climate policy. So, you know, we do research, you know, to really sort of understand what's happening. And then we're also helping to design policy. Um, and that's the work that we're doing in a bunch of different states right now. But, you know, we're, we're designing climate policy. We want it to be science-based climate policy. It needs to be ambitious. It needs to tackle climate change at the scale that it that we need to avoid the worst impacts. But we also need to center, you know, the interest of workers. We need to center equity as we as we take on climate change. And then the other thing we do is provide direct training, education, technical assistance, support to unions, worker organizations, and other groups to help them, as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, to effectively and positively and proactively engage in the debates around climate change. Well, as you've been talking about right here, there's obviously a very practical side to all this. For example, Climate Jobs New York, which I think dates back to 2017, which was kind of the first, as I understand, partnership of Labor Leading on Climate Initiative with the state. That work led to, I believe, it was a campaign that lobbied the state for a target of nine gigawatts of offshore wind and prevailing wage and project labor agreements for all those workers. So tell us a little bit more about, you know, the, the model that you're working on at the States to actually, you know, have the rubber hit the road and really create new jobs in clean energy. Yeah. So, I mean, in New York, I mean, just to give you a little bit of background on that, that helps explain the work that we're doing in other states now. I mean, basically, you know, Hurricane Sandy hit downstate New York. Hurricane Irene hit upstate New York. Um, you know, massive devastation. We really saw firsthand how workers union members, frontline communities um, that have faced historic inequities were hurt first and worst, right? They saw the most damage, had the fewest resources to adapt and recover from these storms. Um, and we really saw, you know, union members on the front lines of dealing with these storms and the recovery afterwards, right? Um, the nurses union, um, nurses were carrying patients downstairs by hand to evacuate them from hospitals because there was no power and the elevators weren't working anymore. We saw public sector workers who were, you know, stranded at you know water treatment plants trying to keep those plants online uh, members of the transport workers union trying to get buses and trains to safety and out of you know harm of flooding so it just changed the level of consciousness around climate change in new york fundamentally it wasn't like climate change is something of the future it's like it's here now and we're already seeing the impacts and wow um, what can we do to make sure that we don't see, you know, future storms like this, or at least try to to limit, um, you know, the number and intensity of, of future storms. And at the same time, we were seeing more solar and wind projects being built throughout New York State, but most of them being built non-union. 
Um, and then on top of that, the environmental movement was sort of rallying after Hurricane Sandy and Irene saying, we need to pass big, bold climate legislation in New York State, you know, which was absolutely true. Again, we've got to do what we need to do to, to tackle climate change. But we were very concerned that the climate policy that the state, um, you know, passed would not take into consideration the needs and interests of working people. Um, and so, you know, with that, you know, I approached, Cornell approached um, some of the main labor leaders in New York State, the labor federations, members of the building trades, energy sector unions, and said, what would it look like for us to put together a positive proactive plan for dealing with climate change, but in a way that would really sort of maximize job creation and economic benefits and deal with equity issues. And so we did that. We came out with, you know, uh, it was called uh, Combating Climate Change, Reversing Inequality, a Climate Jobs Program for New York State. You can find the report on our website. We produced that in 2017. And that was a labor only process. We brought unions together and said, let's design this plan. Again, it was a multidimensional, you know, research, policy, training and education program. Um, and at the end of that process, the unions that were involved said, this was a great process. This is a great report. Um, but we don't want just a report that's going to collect dust on the shelves. You know, we want to actually try to make some of this stuff happen and implement um, the recommendations that were developed in the report. And as you mentioned, the first thing they focused on was offshore wind. And we identified that as an opportunity to to deal with climate change, you know, shift New York to renewable power um, and do it in a big way so that we could see, you know, the sort of, um, you know, carry on economic development benefits, right, to build a whole offshore wind industry with a manufacturing supply chain that could create a lot of jobs. And we said to do that, we've got to go big. Um, you know, about half of New York's power should come from offshore wind. That's where the nine gigawatt um, target came from. And we said this work should all be covered by a project labor agreement to ensure that these are going to be, you know, high quality family and community sustaining jobs. And the unions that were involved launched their own organization, Climate Jobs New York. Um, they campaigned around offshore wind and they were able to win win that goal. They got the offshore wind target. They got the project labor agreement requirement and, you know, continue to go on and are running a number of, of different campaigns around climate jobs now. And so that was really what we did in New York was sort of the basis for unions and other states coming to us. Myself, uh, Mike Fishman, uh, who used to be the president of SEIU 32BJ, uh, Vinny Alvarez, the president of the New York City Central Labor Council, John Podesta, we got together and said, what if we created a, a national resource center that could help unions and other places develop similar plans, run similar processes to, to have sort of their own proactive, pro-worker, pro-union climate jobs plan. So we set up that resource center Labor Leading on Climate acts as the educational and academic partner to the Resource Center, and we're now running similar processes in about a dozen states across the U.S. Has there been any resistance to this? I mean, when I think about, you know, the struggle that wind energy and solar energy have had over the last decade, it's to bring costs down. Has there been anybody who said, well, this is going to raise costs, make these, uh, you know, these alternatives less competitive? I mean, have you seen pushback? A little bit. Yeah. I mean, there is, you know, some parts of the environmental movement, but keep in mind, you know, the environmental movement is very big and diverse. Um, you know, many of the um, environmental justice, climate justice, grassroots um, environmental groups who are involved in this work, they are very eager to see the development of the clean energy economy benefit their communities. Um, they're very eager to see job creation in their communities, and they want them to be high quality jobs. Um, and they recognize the value of them being union jobs and having access to the, um, you know, world class union training infrastructure. Um, you know, there's some concern from um 
you know, the clean energy, you know, business community, some parts of the environmental movement, you know, will, you know, having labor standards on this work increase costs and slow the development um, of clean energy work. But, you know, there's been a number of studies in the last few years that show that the labor cost of these projects is actually very small. It's usually mm-hmm. in the six to 8% range. Um, it's all of the other aspects of the projects that actually cost a lot more. Um, and so, you know, increasing, you know, wages, to make sure that these are good jobs um, tends to have very little impact um, on the overall cost of the project. And if you think about industries like offshore wind, you know, most of the developers that are coming in to do these projects are European companies. They've been doing offshore wind development in the North Sea for, you know, more than a decade. Um, and they're used to working with unions. The vast majority of their workforce is union. What is the the corollary in the clean energy space to a job such as one in a coal-fired power plant where you've got pipe fitters who are, you know, employed over many decades or, you know, keeping the equipment in shape, ensuring the long ongoing uh, operation of that plant? Where is that type of ongoing role in the clean energy industry? Because as you said earlier, when you put up a wind farm, a lot of that work is in the initial construction, less work is involved in the ongoing operations. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there's a couple different answers to it. Um, you know, for example, we did a bunch of work in Texas. Um, you know, Texas is, of course, one of the oil and gas industrial powers of the world. Um, you know, and so one of the things they're looking really closely at is, you know, what role does green hydrogen, so hydrogen that's produced completely by renewable energy, you know, play in these industrial se- sectors? You know, I mentioned earlier, you know, uh, you know, steel making, concrete making, those, you know, uh, industrial processes, which tend to be quite high carbon, they often have a fossil fuel power generation site, um, you know, connected with the industrial facility, there is potential for those facilities to shift to green hydrogen. So you'll still be making those products, but you'll be producing them with a zero carbon um, renewable energy source through the green hydrogen. So in some cases, right, it's like thinking about how we maintain jobs, good jobs that already exist by converting those um, processes to be low or zero carbon. That's part of it. Um, and again, in you know, a place like Texas, you know, the United Steelworkers, um, other unions, you know, have, you know, significant union density in some of those industrial sectors. So figuring out how they can be sort of the green energy capital of the world, um, you know, is really important. And then there's other things, too. If you think about, you know, plumbers and pipe fitters, um, again, you know, I mean, you know, one of the spaces that plumbers work in right now and are absolutely critical to is water quality. Um, well, you know, it actually takes a lot of power to move um, water throughout buildings and to heat and cool water. Um, and so thinking about, um, you know, how we are increasing um, the energy efficiency of water movement, how are we capturing water and reusing it? Um, how are we heating and cooling it with different um, mechanisms like heat pumps um, is a big opportunity in the building space that the plumbers and pipe fitters would be very connected to. Again, you know, we have, you know, wastewater treatment plants that produce um, heat that can be converted into power. And so thinking about how you take that power and get it back into the current gas pipeline distribution system and be using it in our cities to heat and cool buildings um, is another opportunity. Um, And then, of course, like geothermal. Geothermal is all about piping, right? Putting a lot of piping into the earth 
um, and using that core temperature of the earth to, to heat and cool buildings, you know, plumbers and pipe fitters obviously would play um, a big role in that. And, you know, I was just learning recently about some of the programs that the United Association of Plumbers and Pipe Fitters have around geothermal, around heat pumps, around water efficiency and water and air quality. Um, and again, you know, um, the union training infra infrastructure is so impressive and I continue to be impressed by all of the sort of forward looking programs that many unions have um, implemented over the last years. Well, it's interesting just to emphasize the point on this one. So the unions in, in Texas that you're talking about that were involved in this Texas Climate Jobs Project, those are unions that were representing people working in the fossil fuel industry, are working in the fossil fuel industry who are now looking for opportunities in clean energy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I mean, Texas, you know, has installed um, a huge amount of solar and wind. Um, unfortunately, you know, most of it has been um, installed um, by non-union labor. And so there's concerns around the quality of those jobs. Um, but, you know, it's a big state. It uses a lot of power. You know, some of the things that we look at and are in our climate jobs plan that may be of interest to folks are things like, how does the public sector lead? Um, you know, if you look at a place like Texas, but, you know, a huge number of public school buildings that consume a massive amount of energy every year. Um, you know, what about installing renewable energy on site? What about doing deep energy efficiency retrofits of those buildings? Um, it's good for the climate. It's good for the, the health and safety of the students, teachers and staff in those schools. And it's good for the state and school districts in the sense that it really reduces um, energy cost. Um, they're spending a lot of money to power, to provide electricity and heat and cool those buildings, you know, and that's going to become a bigger factor as climate change intensifies and we have more extreme heat. You know, many schools across the U.S. don't currently have air conditioning. That's likely going to change in the coming decade and, again, be another well, reason why energy demand goes up. So thinking about how we retrofit and install renewable energy at, at public schools, at public buildings in New York, we're looking at how you do this in the New York City um, public health housing system, which is a huge, you know, building system. How do you do it in health and hospital systems? You know, again, a really big consumer of energy. There are things that we could be doing now um, to deal with climate change, reduce energy costs, which would be good for these sectors, but also create a lot of jobs um, and do this work at scale. Because that's a thing that we often see as we look across states is the work is not being done at, at the scale and pace that it needs to be done to really mm -hmm. deal with climate change, which is also problematic on the job side, because if you're not doing it at scale, you know, some states have programs to retrofit school buildings. But if you're only doing a dozen, you know, school buildings a year, and you have thousands and thousands of school buildings, you know, you're also not seeing the potential to create a lot of jobs in this space either, because you're just not doing it at scale, you're not doing the investment. And if you were doing it at scale, you could actually, you know, then, you know, do bulk purchasing um, of windows and doors, insulation, solar panels, right, you would, you know, bring the cost down even further to do this work. Um, so that's an example, you know, of, of something that we looked at in Texas, you know, there's big opportunities in the building sector, there's big opportunities in the transportation sector, we know to deal with climate change, we're going to have to rely more on, you know, low carbon, high efficiency public transit, you know, that's buses, you know, that's light rail, that's high speed rail. And again, a lot of opportunities on the jobs front, both constructing these systems, but also you know, in the ongoing operations and maintenance. 
it seems to me like there might be two general buckets here that we're looking at in terms of the workers. And those are workers that have skills that are pretty immediately transferable to the clean energy economy and those who may not or may require more retraining. Uh, And it's interesting uh, in kind of doing some research before we spoke, I ran across a presentation from the Seattle Fossil Fuel Workforce Transition Study. And it pointed out that manual and construction related jobs are actually going to be those that are most impacted by automation, which I thought was interesting. How do you talk about transferability, risks, need for new skills, and and where does automation fall into all of this? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, one thing that I wanted to mention earlier when you asked about transition is I think it's really important to keep in mind that in the U.S., um, we really struggle with doing transition well. Um, we we have not done, you know, there's a term um, in the kind of climate and labor space called uh, just transition. The idea that, you know, there is a transition for workers and communities that are negatively impacted by climate change and this transition to clean energy, that there'll be, you know, a just and equitable transition for them into this new economy. Um, and on the job side, that there would be jobs that are, you know, just as well paying, that provide similar benefits, um, you know, as workers currently have, um, you know, who work in, in parts of the, you know, high carbon and energy intensive parts of the economy. And, you know, the reality is, you know, we have tried to do transition in this country before and we just haven't done it well. We haven't provided the depth of support that workers and communities need to make this transition and we haven't provided the breadth. So we just haven't reached the full scale of workers and communities that are actually impacted by these transitions. You know, I mean, in most states in this country, companies are only required to give a few months notice of closure. That's not nearly enough time for workers and communities to figure out what's next. You know, so set aside the kind of skills part of it. Just if a power plant or some other facility is closing down and you only have three months notice and that community was largely oriented around that plant, you actually need years of notice and Mm -hmm. financial assistance and technical assistance to figure out what's, you know, your role in this new economy, you know, what could your community do? You know, what's the alternative economic development activity and plan that you're going to put in place that can actually provide um, the same level of jobs and economic support that that plant or facility was providing before. Um, you know, and we've done trips to Europe to learn about offshore wind and other issues. And we've said to unions and workers over there, how do you deal with transition? And it's a totally different, you know, ball game, um, right? Um, if you lose your job, you are automatically guaranteed in many countries that you'll be paid the same as uh, you were when you were working. That's not how unemployment works in this country. And, you know, you have universal health care. Our benefits, our health care in this country are tied to being employed. So, you know, those things make transition in this country much, much more complicated than it is um, in some parts of Europe that have started to undertake this transition. Um, you know, and we tried to do this with the steel industry. You know, we still have a trade adjustment assistance program. And there's been numerous studies on these programs that say, you know, not really, you know, not really working well. And, you know, those programs are there to deal with automation, right, as well as relocation. So I think it's really important to to keep in mind, big picture here, yes, there's going to be a lot of new jobs in the clean energy economy, but there's not a direct path for folks who are currently working in the energy and high carbon industries into those new jobs. It's just not that simple. And we don't have a good transition infrastructure in place in this country to support 
um, you know, workers into, into that new economy. So it's, it's complicated here. And again, like I said before, because, you know, our economy is largely produ- producing low wage, low quality jobs, right? If you look at the economy in most states, you see most workers are, you know, making $15 an hour or less. Um, so if you're, you know, someone with a high school, you know, education working in a power plant, making $100,000 or more uh, a year, right? It's very scary to think about, you know, what's next if that plant um, closes down. Are there any recommendations that you have been working on or the group that you work with have been working on to find a path to support workers through the transition. I just have to recall, we did a podcast, uh, I think a couple episodes ago, looking at Germany's coal transition. It was just like you just mentioned. The social support system is very strong for workers who are transitioning out of coal. And even workers who are close to retirement, essentially they are, you know, the plan is to support them into their retirement. What might you recommend in the United States? Is there something in either the bipartisan infrastructure bill that would support this or in Build Back Better, if that ever becomes reality, that you might be looking towards? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things I would mention. Um, One, you know, I think the work that we're doing at the state level to develop these climate jobs plans um, is so important because, you know, we really we really stand, you know, with you know, one foot in the climate world and one foot in the labor world, thinking about, you know, how do we um, take on climate change in a way that's going to create high quality jobs and build stronger, fairer um, uh, communities and economies. And so, you know, when we develop our plans, we're very concrete. You know, if we're going to make this transition, how much renewable energy do we need to build? What type of renewable energy? How many buildings do we need to retrofit? What does that retrofit work look like? Um, what do we need? How many electric vehicle charging stations do we need to um, build? What public transit systems do we need to improve and, and expand um, to make this transition? So we're very concrete about what needs to be built um, to get to this, you know, net zero economy that we need. Um how much it's going to reduce emissions and get us to those science-based targets, how many jobs it's going to create. And then we get very specific about what do we need to do to make sure that these are going to be high quality jobs and that workers have the training that they need, um, uh, you know, to work in these new industries and new jobs. And then, you know, how much is it going to cost and how do we pay for it? Um, so, you know, we really, we really try to, to, to create very specific concrete plans that it's easy for legislators and policymakers and others to look at and say, okay, yeah, here's the roadmap, um, for what we need to do. Um, and I think as we think about transition, you know, particularly for workers who are currently working in the, um, you know, energy economy, it's really important to be able to say, like, this is what needs to be built, you know, so that everyone can start sort of figuring out, okay, you know, this is, this is the, these are the workforce skills that we need, um, uh, to meet this demand. And then the other part of what we do is making sure that these new jobs are going to be good jobs because it's hard to talk about this transition if you keep looking ahead and seeing, hmm, the vast majority of jobs in solar and wind and energy efficiency, other parts of the clean energy economy are low wage, low quality jobs, right? Like that is not an incentive to make that transition. Um, so I think, you know, the work that we're doing at the state level, um, is really important. Um, in that way. And then I think if you have that vision, if you have that vision for how do you get to that net zero economy um, and it's and it's tailored to specific states and it really digs into, you know, we don't want abstract generic numbers around how many jobs are going to be created in a particular sector. You really need to get in there and understand 
Now, how many iron workers are going to be needed on a job? How many electricians are going to be needed on a job? How many hours do you typically work on a, say, a school retrofit project? Um, that's the kind of detail and nuance that we need as we try to make this transition. And then you can use that to really sort of coordinate uh, workforce development um, and figure out what timeline, you know, you need to have, um, you know, the, the workforce ready for that work. And then, you know, a big piece of, you know, the labor standards part, like, for example, you know, a project labor agreement, some folks in your audience may not know what that is. That's basically a project management tool where, you know, the unions, the building trade, and the company, the developers who are doing a project get together and say, what are we building? How long is it going to take? What type of workers and workforce skills, safety training do we need to do this project? Um, and you map it all out, right? And if you map it all out, then you know how many folks you need to bring into the training pipeline um, to have them ready for, say, you know, 2026, when these three offshore wind projects are starting. And of course, you know, part of that commitment is that these workers will be paid well, that they'll be provided good benefits, and that these will be union jobs. So I think, you know, the the combination of having these concrete plans, committing to these being high quality jobs, and then actually having the labor standards on the work that ensures it is, you know, really important for us um, making this transition effectively. What sounds like advocacy is a really important part of this as well in terms of bringing those industries to the states. I mean, on the East Coast, there's a lot of competition for these new wind energy jobs to build the new energy supply chains in a given state. So I'd imagine that you and the unions are working to bring those supply chains to the given state that you're working with, right? I mean, that's a, you know, that's a perfect example of where you know, there's going to be a lot of work on the construction side of building these offshore wind turbines. But then, you know, once they're up, yes, there is operations and maintenance work. Um, you know, um, somebody has to make sure that these uh, turbines are working optimally. Um, they require regular maintenance. But again, it's not kind of the same scale as um, uh, operations and maintenance work that you see in a coal, oil, gas or nuclear plant. Um, so, yes, we're very concerned around, you know, will there be you know, manufacturing assembly port jobs connected to this industry. Um, that's where the vast majority of jobs are in, manufacturing and assembly. And I think, you know, we're getting to the point where the U.S. is committing um, to a large amount of offshore wind development. You know, Biden has set a goal for 30 gigawatts. Um, states up and down the East Coast have and now have, you know, a pipeline of projects in the works. I think we're going to see even more offshore wind development. We're now, you know, looking at developments in the Gulf Coast, on the West Coast, um, out in Hawaii. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of opportunity um, for us to procure energy from offshore wind. And with that, I think we need to think about how we really sort of bundle that demand and say we need to see more manufacturing and assembly sites uh, for these turbines, you know, many of which are the size of the Statue of Liberty. They're huge things. They take a lot of work to put together, um, a lot of manufacturing work connected to that. And I think, yes, we want to figure out how some of that work um, uh, is is happening in the U.S. And New York had a, a great victory in their last legislative session, Climate Jobs New York advocated for there to be buy American, build New York provisions in the procurement of offshore wind in the state so that developers, as they're committing to doing projects, they look to, you know, what can be manufactured in New York. Um, and I think we just need to be doing more. And I think we could be doing that at the federal level too, right? The Biden administration could be saying, hey, you know, I I, I want to talk to the developers and say, we've got big commitments for offshore wind. What, what uh, production processes are you going to locate in the U.S.? 
You know, environmental groups have historically been very involved in this. What's the relationship with environmental groups? How much have labor groups worked with environmentalists to push some of this forward? You know, it really varies across the U.S., um, you know, and over time, um, I have seen so much great collaboration between the labor movement and the environmental movement over the years. You know, there's also been a lot of pitched battles between the labor movement and the environmental movement. Um, you know, in our work, um, most recently, this work that we're doing in states, as I mentioned earlier, we're really focused on um, convening unions to put together these these proactive climate jobs plans. Um, and we really sort of center the processes around the unions that are most concerned about this transition and job loss. So a lot of the focus is on building trades unions, energy unions, other unions that work in sectors that are going to be significantly impacted by the transition. Um, and we made that intentional decision to do these kind of labor only processes because we just recognize that there are such unique challenges and opportunities for labor and for workers in this transition. And it felt important to be able to work through those, to identify them, work through them, figure out ways to, you know, address the challenges, but also seize the opportunities and figure out kind of, um, you know, our, our sort of internal way to approach climate so that unions could ultimately be better partners to the environmental movement and more effective partners and go to the environmental movement and say, yes, you know, climate change is one of the most important issues of our time. We've got to tackle it. We've got to tackle it at scale. There's a lot of opportunities here. And also we have a lot of concerns around, for example, the quality of these new jobs. And here's what we think needs to happen to make sure that these are going to be good jobs. So I feel really encouraged, um, you know, by the way that the climate jobs coalitions that have been set up in Texas and Illinois and Maine and New York and Rhode Island are collaborating with environmental partners. And uh, in Rhode Island, their coalition, Climate Jobs Rhode Island, is made up of unions, environmental organizations, as well as legislators that have come together to do this work. So final question for you here. So there have been these coalitions, as you mentioned, in so many states. New York was the first one. Most recently, I believe, Rhode Island. Where are you looking to go next with this? And are there any kind of takeaways or learnings that you would leave us with in terms of how to build these coalitions to create better jobs and to advance decarbonization? I mean, I think we continue to be focused on the state level. In some cases, we're focusing on the city level where, you know, state level action is difficult. I think given the sort of uncertain nature of what will happen at the federal level, it's very important that there are robust coalitions at the state level that can show that we can tackle climate change in a way that creates good jobs. I think we've got to implement as much as we can at the state level. And so when the opportunities arise to really sort of scale this work up at the federal level, we know what works and what doesn't work. I think with the federal infrastructure money that is available currently and will drive investment into the to the clean energy economy, we've got to do as much as we can to get those those projects um, up and running to actually create jobs. And I think, you know, from my perspective, that there are labor standards attached to the federal monies that are going down to states and cities that, mm -hmm. you know, um, ensure that these are going to be high quality jobs is, is really important. Um, you know, some states are not able to do that. They're not able to have those labor standards. And I think we need to send the message from the top that, yes, we're going to take on climate change, but we're also going to take on inequality. And we're going to make sure that those labor standards are built into the federal monies that are coming down. Lara, thanks very much for talking. Thank you. 
Today's guest has been Lara Skinner, director of the Labor Leading on Climate Initiative at Cornell University's School of Industrial and Labor Relations. Visit the Climate Center's website for more podcasts, as well as energy policy research and blog posts from experts in the field. To keep up with the latest from the center, subscribe to our monthly newsletter on our website. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day. 